Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, brought to you by the Lipscomb Pitts Breakfast Club. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference, so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now, here's our host, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. We are in for a treat. We have a little bit of a, of a legend. I like to call him a legend here, a Memphis legend, but he's uh, very famously known. Bill Courtney. He's the author of Against the Grain. He's an undefeated coach, and we'll make sense of that in a little bit, but very rare opportunity to have somebody who's associated with an Academy Award-winning project. Um, He's an entrepreneur, he's a business owner, you go through it through and through, but you are a change maker. Bill Courtney, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. It sounds like I'm great. All that good stuff about me, I must be pretty great. Yeah, I'm just good. carry me wherever you go and I'll yeah. introduce you. That's it, I'm The good. greatest <laughs> thing ever, Bill Courtney. <laughs> wow. But, um, you know, you have, you, you've covered uh, a pretty amazing journey and when people look at you and see the impact you're having on lives, and obviously a big part of that storyline is Manassas High School, and we'll talk about that in a second, but stepping in as a coach and turning a, a program, a football program that was not doing very well into making it a success, and obviously that story was well done documented, but you've done a lot of amazing things, transforming lives on the business front, but also in the community. So let, let's start out. Let's let's start. You're a Memphian. I am. And uh, give us a little bit of your childhood being raised right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, um, I got beat up a lot because I'm fat and redheaded. So I learned how to take a punch. Um, I grew up, I grew up um, over off uh, Park and Colonial area. Um, I, you know, I, I skinned my knees at Marquette Park when they had the basketball court there. I can still listen to the ball going through the chain nets. Um, I don't think my wife is listening, so I kissed my first girl behind Steverson's Big Star over at uh, Colonial and Poplar where the old XL gas station, the Topps Barbecue, used to be. Um, I, you know, I, I just, that's where I grew up. Um, I... You know, I went to school at Ole Miss uh, primarily because I got a scholarship there and graduated from Ole Miss and came home and started coaching football and teaching school. That's really all I ever wanted to do. And this thing with his long brunette hair, wearing a lime green shirt and a big pretty smile and tan skin, walked in the cafeteria, the back of the cafeteria one day to talk to her aunt who owned the cafeteria business and uh, I happened to be up there getting lunch one day and looked through the cafeteria window and thought, who is that? Um, and Lisa and I were married two years later and had our children. And at one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, and four-year-old, um, football coach didn't pay the bills anymore. And then I bumped around in a bunch of different things. And then in 2001, started a, a company off my couch with about $10,000. And here we are. Classic American Hardwoods. And you document that story, a lot of the challenges that you went through and, and still, I probably believe, are still going through today, but um, in your book, Against the Grain. And so let, let's back up a little bit because I, I want to touch on some things. Talk about some of the sports you played growing up and the scholarship with Ole Miss. Well, I lettered in six sports in high school, um, which is insane, but I did, which was football, basketball, baseball, golf, tennis, and soccer. Um, I wasn't particularly good at four or five of them, but I played and enjoyed it and lettered. Um, I went to I had I had some small football scholarship offers um, back in those days, and I, I didn't want to go play small school ball, and I thought I was good enough to go play somewhere else. I, I actually had a, an uh, academic scholarship to Ole Miss, um, and my plan was to go down there and play football, walk on, and do that which they were happy to have me because they didn't have to use an athletic scholarship. Right, academic scholarship. Right, you're good. Until you go out there and you find out that you were really good in high school, but you're not really good at the SEC. And so that was short-lived. And then actually the, the Ole Miss soccer team's goalie got hurt, and their backup goalie two days later separated his shoulder, and they needed a goalie. And so I ended up playing soccer after that for a couple of years at Ole Miss. And – um, but really, my time at Ole Miss was more about um, my time at Sigma Nu, uh, my fraternity, which was really involved in the community. Um, I wrote a column for the Daily Mississippian, which I really enjoyed, and 
so I had a, I had a great time at Ole Miss, graduated, and came home. Because you were also one of the founders of the Sigma Nu Charity Bowl, grown to be one of the largest Greek philanthropy projects here in the U.S. Talk about that. When Chucky Mullins was hurt, um, and most people know the story of Chucky when Brad Gaines, when Chucky actually hit Brad Gaines and broke his neck and he died a couple years later. That same year, a kid named Alan Moore was from Lauderdale, Mississippi. He had the exact same injury Chucky did with no insurance and a, you know, a, a pretty low-income school. Uh, he didn't even have enough money for a wheelchair wheelchair ramp, and he had the exact same injury as Chucky. And so that year, um, Chucky was getting millions of dollars from the university and everything to care for him, which was right. But this kid, this high school kid, had the same injury only – an hour and a half away from Ole Miss, but had no help. And so uh, we came up with this idea of the Charity Bowl, which is a full padded, full contact football game between our fraternity and any other fraternity that wanted to bid enough money. And the proceeds were to go to Alan Moore in honor of Chucky Mullins. Uh, Coach Brewer, uh, Chucky, Chucky, all all the people thought it was a great idea. We put it on in that first year, I think we raised $17,000. Since then, it has grown to be the largest Greek philanthropy project in the United States. And I think Sigma Nu last year raised $110,000 for one person. It's raised in excess of $1,500,000. And I think if you went to Ole Miss, you probably know what the Charity Bowl is. And it all started back in those days in honor of Chucky Mullins. And, you know, I'm just, you know, um, it's, it's one of the things, of all the things that have happened in my life, it remains one of the things that I'm probably most proud of because it has sustained 30 years and right. it continues to stay strong to this day. And and it really is um, for the benefit of someone who, some person who, uh, who has serious needs. And um, again, I'm just extraordinarily proud of it. I'm proud of the fraternity for keeping it going and did such a good job with it. Where do you think it started? Did, did your parents instill that virtue in you of, of caring for others? Was there, you know, scouts or you know, usually when you talk about community service, there's an element that comes many times from the parents where it's, hey, we're going to go out here and serve together or having a uh, just a, a warm and open door policy of helping other families. Where, where did that start for you? Well, I mean, my reality's probably not that. My father left home when I was four and I had no relationship with him. Um, one of my mom's husband's shot at me down a hallway with a 38 caliber pistol. I had to dive out a window to save myself. So I'm not really sure that's weird. Right, probably from. not. Probably not. My mom worked hard and she's a very loving, good woman and, and taught me all of the basics and loved and cared for me. But she was working. She didn't have time to give back. But I, I will tell you, her mother, my maternal grandmother, um, was very active in literacy training classes in the inner city. Um, and the Salvation Army, and the Exchange Club, and a number of, she was at the church, she was, uh, there was never a time that I could remember her not donating and volunteering time to to do something, and um, I also had a coach who, I can remember him saying that, you know, part of, it's not a nice thing to do to give back, it's a requirement of our blessings to help those that are the most disadvantaged among us. I remember saying him saying that a lot, and I guess that kind of imprinted on my brain. And um, and and frankly, now, you know, with my business, I have an office in Vietnam, I have one in China. I travel all over Eastern Europe. And first, those who haven't traveled that sit around and gripe about this country, they need to go off for about three weeks somewhere. When they come back, they'll kiss the ground despite all our scars and faults. This is an amazing place. But when I come back, I always think, you know, why has my and my family been so richly blessed? I mean, you know, the the zip code at the time of your birth should not determine your value. And for some reason, I've been blessed far more than I deserve. And I can remember Coach Felker always saying – it's not something nice to do. It's a requirement of those blessings to always help the neediest and most disadvantaged among us. And so I am I am, I am haunted by those words, constantly reminded of it every time I travel 
to the, to the corners of the earth that are third and fourth world countries where you see people working all week for $50, um, that, you know, I, 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 find, I find the greatest reward in my life is watching another person do well for no other benefit except for that person. Um, and so I, I guess it's just, I think we're all a, I, I think I think the sum total of each of our souls are bits and pieces of the best of what we've picked up along the way from many others. And I guess that part of me is just developed over time as a result of what I've picked up from um, some good people who the Lord's put in my life. I totally agree 100%. At what point did you decide or make the decision where I want to be a coach? Because that's really how you describe yourself in public is I'm a coach. I am. And, and I think even I love in, that even analogy. Even in business, I'm well, a coach. Very much so. I mean, as a parent, you're, you're always coaching, right? That's it. Um, but, but actually, that goes to your point before is as a coach, you take all of these amazing experiences from many others who are your mentors and your coaches and you then, you know, kind of package those in your way to then help others. You're, you're exactly like you're, you're you're exactly like not one single person, but you're exactly like pieces of many different people. Right. And and so that's it. And and in answer your question, um, without a father very active in my without a father active in my life at all, um, you know, growing up kind of an athletic big strapping kid you're constantly looking for male mentorship and you're constantly wanting male discipline whether you realize it or not you're craving it maybe not wanting it you're certainly needing it and my coaches provided that for me in my life um you know babe felker zach street philip spain uh bubba wishi i mean i can go on and name 10 men that had a profound effect on my life through the sport that I played for them in, in both positively and negatively and, and the positive lessons I learned from them and some of the things they did that I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. Um, but they were, and so fast forward again, you know, a, a business grows, I start making a little money and love sports still. And I'm still healthy enough to, to get involved with it. Love watching the light come on when a kid finally gets what you've been trying to beat in his head for weeks and um and and the opportunity an interesting interesting relationships develop between players and coaches if those relationships are fostered properly and it gives an opportunity as an adult toward a kid to have an impact and to have influence that really doesn't exist in any other form and to be able to foster that that relationship and to take that opportunity and to watch it manifest itself in a way that a kid takes one more step toward being an adult, there's just no greater reward than that. And so um, I think I've been drawn to coaching uh, because I got so much out of it. So you start Classic American Hardwoods, you have that business going, one of your friends slash coworkers pulls you in to Manassas High School. Who is also a fraternity brother at Ole Miss. There you go. So there's a lot of tie-ins right, here. Right, right. So share a little of that story. Because, I mean, obviously we can see it on the big screen. We can rent it. We can it, see it. It's, it's Jim, undefeated. Jim Tipton was two years behind me at Ole Miss. I'm a fraternity brother. I start this company. I need good sales guys. He came in and started working with me. And his Sunday school class, three guys in a Sunday school class, were cooking pre-game meals for, I think, Kingsbury. And he came to me and he said, you know, I think that's a great outreach. I said, so do I. I think that's great. He said, I think I want to do that. Would you mind if during the football season I kind of vanish around noon on Friday to get some pregame meals going for a local school that, that needs it? And I said, sure, I think it's beautiful. And he said, you got an idea of a school? And I said, man, I have no clue. And my business is in North Memphis, not because that was where my heart's desire was because I didn't have any money and that's where I could find cheap industrial land. And, and right across the street from the post office where I dropped off the mail every day was a school. And I, I didn't even know the name of it. I remember seeing one of those historical placards out front that said Isaac Hayes graduated from there. And that's the only reason I remember the school. Couldn't even tell you the name. I said, man, across the street from the post office, there's a school. Jim literally rides up, walks up the stairs, walks into the front office, asks to speak to the principal unannounced and says, can I help? And it was baseball season. 
and Jim's a baseball guy, and he kind of started helping with the baseball team, bought them hats. They didn't even have ball caps. And that's when spring practice started rolling around, and he looked out at spring practice. They'd won four games in 10 years, and they had 17 kids on a varsity football team. And he came back, and he said, Bill, he said, I'm having this great experience at this place called Manassas. And, um, you know, they, they've got five or six guys out there that look like they could play on Sunday, but they don't know what they're doing. And they got one coach that's trying, but he's, he's, he's struggling with it. And he said, you know, I think they'd love to have you over there for spring practice to help out. And they know you because they knew you coached. And would you want to come? I said, sure, I'll come over there. So I went over there for spring practice. Um, and that was there for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. That's, and the rest is history. That's but, how it happens. So when, when you see the documentary Undefeated, it you know, like many things, you jump in feet first and then you don't realize what all you've gotten yourself into. Oh, that's the truth. And, and next thing you know, I mean, you are, one, you're falling in love with the kids and, and you're doing what you love coaching football. But two is you don't realize the problems that you have to unpack. And not only the anger management issues, the family issues, where they're growing up. Many times, you know, they're going home and facing bullets flying through the air at night. They don't even know that they can sleep at night. So you really dive into their world. And there's a moment in there, and, and you talk a lot about, you, you give tons of speeches all around the world, but uh, one of the kids, you're, you're trying to break through, you're trying to figure out what, what can I do to win them over, to win their trust, to get their buy-in, because we've got to have this buy-in. We've got to, we've got to galvanize the team, and we're not galvanizing. Mm-hmm. And he, he says turkey person. So yeah. just describe a little bit of just kind of what you had to go through. you you got to remember undefeated is my last year. All of this, all of the groundwork that laid for the success that the teams had in year five and six, and year six was undefeated, was in year one and two. When the kids were figuring out, this, is, this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm white, they were all African-American. So there was this... Uh, this barrier that's this um, socially preconceived barrier that exists between very poor inner city African-American kids and assumably affluent white folks. You may not know that, but it exists. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure nobody sees that, but that was the case. And so the first year was just learning to trust each other. The first year was just trying to understand each other. It was so clear when we first got there that besides not knowing anything about the X's and O's of football, um, the, the basic tenets and, 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 and characteristics of, of how you're to lead a meaningful, successful life, character, commitment, integrity, the dignity of hard work, all the stuff that we hope our mothers and grandmothers taught us um, was just absent by and large. And so we didn't just coach football. We were coaching the important stuff. Uh, and, and it became real clear that, you know, we didn't go there to save anybody. We went there to coach football, but these things just developed. Um, and if you're honest with yourself and you can get your kids to be honest with you, things develop and these things developed. And so about halfway through, we were three and three. And I think three and three is pretty average. But, you know, when you've won four year, four games in 10 years, three right, and three is not success. bad. The whole team was buying into football, but only half the team was buying into the important stuff like character and commitment and integrity. And so I went to my guy, and every coach has a guy. I said, Bo, you know, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy into the important stuff like you're half the team? They're respectful in football, yes or no, sir, but the minute practice and games are over, they're back in the streets doing the same kind of destructive things to their lives. And, you know, it was driving me crazy. And I really did get to the point pretty early that, I was a lot less worried about wins and losses on the field and a lot more worried about these kids not getting shot at night. Um, Given a lot of the circumstances that those kids grew up in. And so I I asked Bo, what do I got to do to get them to buy in the important stuff like you? And this is a guy I've had real talks with about everything at this point. And he just said, oh, coach, keep doing what you're doing. And I said, you know, kind of dismissively. And I said, come on, Bo, you've always talked to me. What's up? He said, I want to hurt your feelings. I said, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Just tell me the truth. He said, all right, coach. They're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. And, you know, I learned a lot of vernacular in my first eight weeks at Manassas, but turkey person had not been one that was introduced to me. And I said, Bo, I got no idea what you're talking about. And he said, coach, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, people roll into 
New Chicago and Greenlaw and Smoky City, the neighborhoods we live in, and they drop off gifts and hams and turkeys, and we take them because we ain't got none. But that they leave and we never see them again makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. And he looked me dead in the eyes and he says, what the hell are you doing here, Coach? And it was then that it all dawned on me. It was then that the reason those kids weren't buying in is because, you know, they'd seen it all before. And I was just another adult running through, probably being a little paternalistic, probably trying to save the world. And, you know, once you've seen that in and out of your life about 10 years by your 15th birthday, you're really not interested in seeing it anymore. And it takes, it takes consistency and a long time to break through those barriers. Um, and it taught me a ton about the struggles our communities in this city have. It taught me a ton about um, the struggles our businesses have. And it taught me a ton about the complete and utter misunderstanding that the races have amongst one another and the distrust and why. And... Um, it probably made me not only a better coach and a better person, it made me a better manager of people in my business. Um, you know, I'm bound and determined to never let anybody that I'm trying to, to manage, lead, coach, or work with ever think that I'm there for my own edification only. Um, the, the, the moral of the story is motive matters. And... Um, the interesting thing is if you're a manager and not a leader, you may have people say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, and do what you tell them because they need their job or they want to play the game or whatever. But the minute you turn and walk away, if they think that everything you're doing is just for your own benefit, they'll stare darts through you. They're looking at a fraud. They might do what you ask them to do, but they're not going to buy into any more than what your words are. Um, and that's the danger of being a turkey person. Motive matters. What stands out? Obviously, I know on your end, you still keep in touch with some of the players. Lots of them, yeah. Um, what, what's a proud moment for you? Maybe one or two that just stand out when you look at year, that year, time period. Year two, I graduated Stephen Johnson, and he went to Austin P as a walk-on. He ended up earning a scholarship his sophomore year. He's graduated with a degree in finance and a degree in religion, and he is now a youth pastor in Nashville getting married next weekend to a girl he met three years ago. He is not shacking up. He is getting married to the girl that he's fallen in love with and starting a family, and he came out of the hood. Um, Joaquin Collins, who uh, lived in 16 different foster homes and bounced all over this country after he left Manassas, is now uh, just produced his first record. Um, Chavis Daniels, who spent nine months in jail after his freshman year of college, uh, freshman year in high school, came back and returned and played for me as a college graduate. Um, Dexter Alexander and Dante Harris um, went to Murray State. They're graduating and went at ROTC, and they're going to serve our country starting this spring. Um, they go on and on and on and on, man. I mean, it's 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 phenomenal stuff some of these kids done and listen i don't want to paint a an accurate picture there's some also stories that aren't so rosy um my start and tell back my second year james king is dead um he died uh, a few months ago went to his funeral um i've got kids who had all the opportunity in the world that have squandered them and they're still kind of bounced around trying to figure out so there's wins and losses but to answer your question there's do you know what a Ben Franklin closes. No. Ben Franklin closed. Ben Franklin, he he made decisions thusly. He drew a piece. He took a piece of paper and drew a line straight horizontally down it, and then across the top drew a line vertically. And he put a plus sign on one and minus on the other. And when making any great decision, he would list all the pluses and all the negatives. Gotcha. If the pluses outweighed the negatives, he did, he did it. it. If the negatives outweighed the pluses, he didn't. That makes a lot of sense. Going into a place like Manassas, you have to understand the Manassas are likely to triple or double the pluses, but you also have to recognize that many of those pluses would never happen had you not invested your time and effort into it. So if you look at a situation like that with, um, with a Ben Franklin close, it'll eat you alive and you'll never do it. 
But if you throw that out and you look at the few pluses that are there, um, many of them likely would not have happened in the first place had had you not taken the effort. Then you don't worry about the minuses, and and so that's very much the way I look at all of our experience that six and a half years. There's a ton of pluses that might not have happened had we not taken that first step, and and that's not. When I say we, I mean we. That's me, the other coaches, but that's that's not just the kids with the pluses. I mean, I can't tell you how more enriched my life and the lives of the coaches are and the lives of the coaches' families are as a result of the time there. I mean, it, I, I dare say I probably got more out of it than I put into it. Which is, the beauty, which is the beauty of getting involved in a situation Absolutely. Like that. And, and I think everything that you're talking <clears throat> about is it's, it's a relationship, right? I mean, it is. Many times I think you know, we try to throw money at a problem and think that, oh, it's somebody else is going to fix it or you know, I, I've given financially and so it's somebody else's problem. It's just going to miraculously take care of itself. And everything you're talking about, respect, dignity, hard work, the ethics, character, not giving up on people, it's it's looking at people as people. And, and these are kids that in many cases, they, they can't control the zip code they were born. They can't control where their you know single mother is trying to raise them or uh, the school that they're going to. And so they're dealt these cards and, and people, they give up on them. That, and they have is, no relationship. And so everything you're talking about is you're bringing a real relationship to them and you're, you're believing in them as a person and saying, you know what, you've been, you've been dealt a, a bad card. I understand that. But I'm here. I'm not going away. I love you. I respect you. And we're going to make the best of this and we're going to get there together. And that's a big piece of what's wrong with America about how we fix it. But what you just said is important together. There's also a huge danger in having – there's a difference in having sympathy and empathy. If you empathize with folks in this situation, but you also look them dead in the eye and say, bud, you got free will. You have, you have free will. You can use this as an excuse. I can, I can have sympathy on you and feel sorry for you and give you a bunch of crap, and you're going to be no better off than you were when I found you. Or I can empathize with your situation. I can, I can remind you of your abilities and free will, and I can assist you as you grow yourself out of this thing. See, that's why what you said earlier is so true. Money's not the answer. Having sympathy and throwing money at a problem just makes people dependent. Um, I don't want people dependent. I want them independent. So you have empathy. You remind them of free will, and you give them a hand up, not a hand out. Um, Money is not the answer. Um, it's part of the answer, but you know, just continuing to throw money. If, if money was the answer, we would not have the highest poverty level in the history of our country since the Great Depression and $19 trillion in debt. We wouldn't have both. Money is not the answer. It's part of the answer. Certainly, it's got to be money, but it's a, it's, it's a mentality and it's approach and it's a, a brand of leadership that in my opinion, has vastly been lost in our society. So switching gears a little bit, but give us one fun story. I know you've got quite a few of standing on red carpets. And, <laughs> you know, when you look at the whole undefeated experience, give us one special moment that stands out to you. Well, I mean, it's special or funny because they're either one. Too, OK, I'll give you funny uh, special. That's too sappy. We got way sappy on this thing anyway. Um, Lisa, throughout the whole thing, Lisa, my wife, throughout the whole thing, has really not been very impressed at all. Um, she married a football coach and a guy from Memphis. She did marry, you know, the Academy Award winner on Jimmy the Kimmel. Tuxedo, and old, Black Gen Tie. Yeah, Ellen DeGeneres show and hanging out with <laughs> P. Diddy and all that. She doesn't hurt, that. though, right? Yeah, well, you would think, <laughs> but she probably grew less and less impressed as that evolved. She just doesn't care about any of it. She really and truly is not impressed. And so through the whole process, you know, she's been like, if you let this go to your head and you start acting like something you're not, I'm, 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 I want nothing to do with it. You better keep it real. So keep it real has been kind of a family mantra throughout the whole thing. And I'm, I'm about to go speak to the Olympics uh, in Colorado Spring, four or 5,000 people in the venue. And I'm going downstairs on an escalator, keeping it real because that's what I have to do because oh, I'm also scared of Lisa. So I do everything she tells me to do. So I'm going down the escalator and I'm keeping it real. And, it, 
And at the bottom of the escalator on the left, these two girls, I I would assume they're gymnasts or swimmers because they're, I mean, honestly, it's just hot is what they are. It's just, and I'm married. I'm happily married. I'm faithful. And so I do what any happily married faithful guy does. The minute I see the girls, I look away. I, I might have taken a peek back. But, I mean, I, in general, I look away. And I'm keeping it real. And I'm kind of consolidating my thoughts because it's 5,000 Olympians I'm about to go speak to. And the, and the first girl noticed me as I'm coming down the elevator. And she goes, oh, look, there he is. There he is. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, here I am. You know, the realness left me pretty quickly. And her friend said, yeah, I know him too, but I thought Chris Farley had died. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me of the of the world has a very interesting way of, of bringing you back into round <laughs> right. when you start thinking you're something you're not. So, um, you know, I got so many, you know, Lisa and Serena Williams drank far too many Jack and Cokes one night at a Hollywood party, and I looked over, and Lisa's over there with both hands squeezing her biceps, saying, you've got such big muscles. And <laughs> on the way out of a party, Ben Stiller was sitting there talking to a bunch of people, and she, but Ben Stiller doesn't know us, or Lisa, and Lisa had Listen, glass of wine number glass of wine number one. Lisa's good. Glass of wine number two. Lisa's fun. Glass of wine number three. It's time to go. She was on three, and we're walking out of this party. And Ben Stiller's talking to a couple of people. One of them was like Kevin Bacon. I can't I can't remember for sure. Yeah, it was Kevin Bacon. And as we pass by, Lisa just stops right next to him. And Ben Stiller's, I mean, he's he's a cute guy. He's about he's not much taller than Lisa, and. uh she just reach over and grabs his cheek and squeezes his dimple and goes, you are so cute. <laughs> like he's a little four-year-old. And then she just walks off, and I'm standing there behind her, and he looks at me, and I'm like, I got nothing, dude. I'm sorry. And as I walk away, I hear him go, who the hell was that? <laughs> so we've had, I could. But that's what you can say. It's you don't have Southern a six, hospitality. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, know, you don't have a six-hour podcast, but I have. A lot of stories, and they continue to develop. I That'll mean, just still have to be like its own podcast series, the Bill Courtney. Like, <laughs> you know. We have, oh my goodness, we have some fun stories, lots of fun stories as a result of it. It's one of the payoffs for all of it. So, uh, give us one other one. You between, you know, Voice of Madden, and you, you've done some really cool things. But what's what's been one of your favorites so far? I mean, when you look at all of the fun opportunities. Yeah, I mean, keeping it real, and you get the grounded, and you know, some some humble beatdowns there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what's been one of I get yeah, just a fun downs, experience? Trust me, I get yeah. Um, uh, they've all been fun. I, I, okay, so you got to hang out with Pete Carroll. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, you know, all that. But here, here's 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 the here's the thirty thousand foot view. Undefeated won an Academy Award and Oscar, and I got to walk the red carpet. I mean, that's insanity. And I, I, all of these stories I'm telling you, people I know now, and, it, you know, it's... But here's the truth. Undefeated is a documentary. I'm not an actor. They stuck a, a camera in my grill for nine and a half months and followed me around. I didn't do anything. Nobody asked me to say anything. I was never asked to repeat anything. Nothing was ever set. It was true, fly-on-the-wall documentary... And then they did a beautiful job editing 550 hours of film into a two-hour movie to tell a story. But I didn't do anything. It didn't require any talent. I was just being me. So just imagine someone following you around for a year of your daily life, and then a year and a half later, everybody walk around patting you on the back for just doing what you do every day. It's surreal. So while I'm humbled by it and I appreciate it, I don't take a whole lot of... of uh, pride, maybe. I, I don't even know if pride's the right word. I, it's just, it's it's hard to understand, and it sounds disingenuous unless you're me, but it's, it's I just I just never took a lot of stock in anything I did. The flip side's true with my book and the speeches. Um, as a result of that, um, that gave me a platform, internationally really, to have a conversation about the stuff that I think matters. And, and I started doing, I was started, being booked for a lot of speeches and then after every speech people were like man I want to hear more about this where's your book and then my agent came up and said well, let's write a book and I wrote a book and so now it's evolved into this I get to go around the country talking about stuff that I think that matters and talking about that stuff in a book that's selling all over the place 
And I think that's the thing I like the most of all the parties and all the fun stories and everything else is through all of it, it's given me an opportunity to have a conversation about the dignity of hard work. It's given me an opportunity to have the conversation about what your legacy is supposed to look like, about what commitment really is. And I don't mean being to work on time. We've got a 49% divorce rate in this country. Um, it, about what parenting is. You know, do you remember the Baltimore riots uh, from last year? Certainly don't want to get into the, the police shooting thing, but as a result, there were riots. And the next day, if you remember, like 400 kids came out of school and started rioting. And it was on national TV and Fox News and CNN were hovering around showing it. And the kids would would burn tires and throw rocks. And the police, because their kids, wouldn't attach them. But they were kind of trying to preserve the order. So it was this line of policemen around these kids. The kids would advance. The police would back off. Then the kids would run out of rocks. The police would move forward. 400 of them going crazy. And it's on national TV live. Everybody's watching it. And two blocks away sits this mother in house slippers and a, and a shower cap. And she's watching this thinking, my goodness, that's my kid's school, and this is my neighborhood, this is horrible. And then she sees a kid throw a rock, and she notices her son. And she gets out, she says, oh, hell no. She gets out of her house, wades down across the police line in the midst of all the rioting, finds her son and snatches him up and takes him home. And the next day, all of the news outlets were interviewing her about what a great mother she was and how amazing it was. And she's talking about how she's not going to let her son fall victim to the streets and all that. And that's a great story, and God bless her. But I honestly think the press missed the story. The story should not be that that one mom did that. The story should be that 399 didn't. We are, we are missing so much in society today. And to be able to have a conversation about that through my book and my speeches, as it pertains to your family, to society, to, to, to parenting, to business, to sports, to politics. I mean, one day last year, I gave a speech on the exact same day to the Heritage Foundation and the Huffington Post. I mean, two polar opposites. It was right, the same right. speech. I mean, to me, that's the payoff. That's what I get to do is, is at least start trying to have a conversation about things that non-politically correct, but civil and respectful conversations about race and religion and and creed and the stuff that matters and and how these basic tenets pertain to those things and um, you know if that's the payoff for me I'll take it that's that's been that's been the beauty of it all for me. Well, I love the fact that just knowing you and your story that originally they wanted you to kind of do a watered down version and you stood your ground. And you said no, this is the book that <laughs> I, I want to write. That's yes. absolutely true. So you said I, I want this book to be my story and what I want to say. I don't want to put out a, a generic version. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this my way. And, and I love the fact that's absolutely you, you, true. You stood through that, and, and it's a great book because of it. I turned out a ton of money to write the watered down version to take a little money to do this one. I mean, but I, what's the point in spending a year and a half of your life? really after work every day for five hours pouring yourself into this thing with a co-writer and and doing all it takes to write this thing to do some mamby pamby bull who cares who wants to read that and by the way it doesn't need to be i wants to read about my life i want to talk about stuff that matters and so you're right that's that's you know and um I've you went against that. the grain. And I continue to enjoy it, and well, that's going against the grain. Yeah, that's absolutely. You, you went against the grain. And I just think overall, I mean, your story, when you talk about the hard conversations, I love the fact that you're leading them because you've put your money where your mouth is. You've spent the time. You've you've done things that people many times are afraid to do to break down those barriers, but to, to take that hard step forward. And so um, I definitely commend you for that. Let's switch it over one more time, and then we're going to do kind of some, some rapid-fire uh, questions to wrap it up. But talk about your family because – you know, obviously your family, you made a lot of sacrifices to do what you did at Manassas, to, to launch your business, to do everything that you've uh, been able to accomplish on that side. But talk about your family and, and what you really hope that your children see from you doing this. Because, I mean, obviously you didn't have a father figure. No, no. But to be the father figure for your children now, what do you hope that they've gained from this well, experience? Well, it's really twofold. Um, and I tell my sons that my job is to be an illustration of what you're supposed to be one day for a young lady. And I tell my daughters that my job in the way that I treat your mother is supposed to be an illustration of what you're supposed to expect from a man one day. Um, 
and that's broad, but it covers everything. And um, so, you know, coaching at Manassas, giving time, giving effort, Lisa having to handle, I mean, you got to remember our kids are four kids one year apart, four, three, two, one, now, 21, 20, 19, 18, 21, 20, 19, 18. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, you know, there, there were six years where every single night after work, I was doing football and came home and did film. I mean, it was an enormous sacrifice and buy-in on Lisa's part to allow me to do it. So hopefully they saw the selfless, selflessness of their mother and the support of their mother and the love that their mother had. And, you know, Lisa never made the headlines, but she's as much of it as I ever was. And her willingness to take a back seat to the headlines just for the benefit of these kids. And so hopefully they see that. Hopefully they see a father who who worked hard and cared and did what he did for, I mean, you gotta remember, I was there five and a half years before the cameras showed up. We didn't do this to make a movie. I mean. We were there a long time before anybody ever heard about us, and we didn't do it to get recognition. It just kind of organically happened. And, I'm, and I'd be disingenuous to say I'm, I'm not glad it didn't, but that was not at all um, the point. So I hope they see that. But the, there's another side to it, um, and this will kind of illustrate it to you. Um, my last year going into the playoffs, if you lose in the playoffs, you're out. Going into the last playoff game, we were at dinner on Thursday, and I told – Lisa and the kids by that time didn't come to every game. And I told them, I said, listen, I want you to come to the game tomorrow. It matters to me. And Will said, why? And I said, because if we lose, we're out. And he said, well, there's next year. And I said, no, son, there's not. I'm not going back. And he said, why? And I said, because six years have been long enough that every night and every weekday and every Friday and many Sundays after church, I'm not here with, with you and your mom's tired and I'm tired and it's time for me to spend the rest of the time you guys are going to be in the house with you guys. And he was eight. And he looked at me with crocodile tears and he said, Dad, they need you more than we do. It'll be okay. And that taught me a lesson that I'll never forget, which is none of it matters if you're not taking care of things at home. And... I hope they learned that lesson as well because the reason I left was because I wasn't properly taking things care of things. So I was putting my business in Manassas before all of them, and they'd grown, they'd grown so used to it that not only were they accepting of it, they supported it. And they were supporting it to their own demise, not even knowing it. And that's a huge lesson to be garnered from it. Um, and now I still coach, but... I approach it very differently, and I know what's primary and what's secondary. Um, with regard to my kids, you know, one's uh, one spent her first year in China and Romania, and she's a sophomore at Memphis now, um, about to go to China. Um, again, uh, my youngest daughter's at Ole Miss. I'm pretty sure she knows every single establishment in and around the square. Um, I got a kid graduating from St. George's this year who uh, will be going to Ole Miss. And then I got a sophomore who's doing real well, playing sports and doing great. So very blessed. And through all of that, our families come out closer and stronger. Last serious question, then we'll do the rapid fire. What do you hope your legacy is? I mean, obviously you've been crafting it all along the way, but what do you hope your legacy is, especially here in Memphis? Um, you know, Albert Pike is a 19th century Freemason, and he said this. What you do for yourself in this life dies with you. What you do for another remains immortal. Um, and I've been blessed with a $40 million businesses and offices all over the place and make a really nice income, and I've been very blessed financially. But at the end of the day, I, I hope my legacy is that there's um, at least a handful of people other than my children and my wife who obviously they're part of the subset of people, but other than that, that that will remember one day that something I said or something I did um, will spur them to give back. And this pay it forward thing that's become cliche, I, I don't even like that. I, I, you know, I, I just think give of yourself, be a servant leader. Um, do what Martin Luther King did, do what Gandhi did, do what the greatest leaders of our time did. And 
give of yourself. And if my legacy is in some small way an illustration of you can be a father, you can be a husband, uh, you can be committed to that relationship, you can build a business and make the tough decisions it takes to make a business go, but you can be civil and fair and giving all in the same place. If if somebody takes something from that and, and their lifelong after I'm gone uses that illustration as a way to conduct a part of their life and that's a that's my legacy, then I'll take it. Easy to see why you're a change maker. Um, all right, so here, here's the fun part. We need the, the kind of the fun music, the rapid fire questions. But <laughs> these are basically just fun, random. There's no list. I'm just throwing random stuff out there. But um, more quick answers are just fun ways to get to know you. So okay. what's a favorite TV show? Uh, Blacklist. Oh, nice. All right. Hold it. There's another one. Though. Okay, go ahead. House of Cards. I love House of Cards. <laughs> nice. Blacklist and House of Cards, it's a tie. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I think James Spader is awesome. He's good in that. It's so. a great show. Yeah. It's addictive. I, I, I would second that. All right, so recent movie you've seen? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Favorite restaurant here in Memphis? Folks Folly. Favorite restaurant outside of Memphis? Um, the Golden Steer in Las Vegas. Okay. Elvis has a, a booth there still. Nice. It's old school. Tufted leather, steaks, it's good stuff. <laughs> See, yeah. I learned so much about that just yeah. by these little questions. Yeah. Uh, okay, so favorite place to visit? Um, Vacation-wise? Vacation-wise. Um, Manhattan, in the country. London, out of the country. To be determined will be St. Bart's, which I owe at least a trip to St. Bart's we've never been. So London internationally, Manhattan, domestically, and St. Bart's will probably replace one of those, is my guess. Nice. What, uh, what do you like to do to relax? Um, I, like to, I like to read the newspaper. Um, I like to play chess. Uh, I like to, like to listen to varied musics. And honestly, I just like hanging out with Lisa, watching the news or TV or something. Stay up late, wake up early. What's your preference? Both. I do both. I, I bet I don't go to bed before 12 any night. I'm up by 5.30 every morning. I don't sleep enough, and I can't make myself sleep enough. Any set routines that you go through every day? Um, habits? Set routines and habits. Yeah. Uh, I listen to Fox News on the way to work and CNN on the way home. Uh, I always do that, um, and it is hilarious how both call themselves news agencies and they're nothing more than propagandist pundits for one another's versions of society. So you get a little bit of against the grain in there, aren't there? That's, that's your teaser for listeners right there. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. I would kill for some real news from somebody. We need Walter Conkright back so bad in this country. <laughs> Give us uh, a favorite band or music that you like. Um, old is Cheap Trick, uh, Rush, um, U2, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, new band, frankly, I don't have one because I don't listen to much new music because I don't understand it at all. But um, I do like Royals by Lord. I think that's a pretty cool song, and I know that's not even that new, but I love it. She absolutely disses all these goofballs that think a gold chain matters. <laughs> I just love that you have an explanation for everything. It's awesome. <laughs> all right, so um, let's see. Let's go with what's what's your favorite sport? I mean, obviously football is one of them, but favorite sport to watch? Uh, basketball. I'm a Grizzlies freak. Love it. Absolutely love it it's um there anytime i can be there love it favorite place to take your kids or favorite thing to do with your kids we'll say uh i love coaching them that's that's been that's been one of the most rewarding times of my life i've coached every one of them in at least one sport some three um i absolutely love that and just any vacation they're so close in age they're tight and lisa and i are tight and we're tight together and we kind of have the Courtney way of doing things, which is completely ridiculous. Um, I'll tell you, we're going to uh, uh, raft the Grand Canyon for nine days. That'll be a great trip. Just us. Nice. So that'll be awesome. Who would you consider? I'm sure you've probably got many, but who's a mentor to you? 
Oh, um, 30,000 foot view, Christ. Um, old school mentor, a guy named John Minervini, who was uh, a CFO of Auto Shack and AutoZone in the early days. And, um, and in today's world, my wife. Last she counsels me better than anyone. I would uh, throw my wife in that mix as well. So they have amazing insights. She's my best friend, no doubt. So last question then, what, what favorite bit of advice, what would you offer listeners as kind of a, a wrap-up piece, but just a favorite bit of advice, favorite quote, something you throw on there is food for thought. Next time you're on, boy, this just came out of the blue, but next time you're on 240 on the north side, and you cross over Warford or Smith, or you're on the south side and you cross over maybe Mill Branch or Airways, and you look over the edge of the viaduct and you think to yourself, you know, somebody, you know those exits where you don't want to have a flat tire? Those ones? And, and you think to yourself as you see the, the blight and the disenfranchisement and the loss, and you think to yourself, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. And then kind of as you clear the viaduct and you look in the rearview mirror and look back on it, um, uh, it's a pretty revolting thought to think that just because you think somebody ought to do something about that, that that makes you socially aware. Um, I suggest you tilt that rearview mirror about 16 degrees and look back at it. You know, who is somebody? Our, our, our government has proven and continues to prove woefully inadequate. All they do is spend money and create more dependency. Um, the somebody who ought to do something about that is us. It's our country. It's our city. It's our society. It's, it's, it's our responsibility is the virtue of having the blessings to even being in a car, riding around the interstate, and being able to pass over those very exits and not have to live in them that, um, you know, it's incumbent upon us to be that somebody to do something about it. And it and it doesn't take any more than what Jim Tipton did when he pulled in the parking lot unannounced and walked up the steps of Manassas and said, hey, I'm here, can I help? There you go. Easy to see why he is a change maker. Make sure, go buy the book Against the Grain. Check out the documentary Undefeated. You will be blown away. You'll be inspired. Uh, Against the Grain is absolutely a fantastic book. So, Bill Courtney, thank you for all you do, not only here in the Mid-South, but for being an inspiration all around the world. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Good to be here.